Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for the download. We appreciate all of your support. Phil, who's on the show today? Yeah, today we are in episode 86, and I just cannot believe we've done that many episodes, but I am excited that we have been able to get such great content out there. Today is no exception. Uh, Today we have Sandeep, Ruth, and Vanita Thomas. It's an adoptive family, at least part of an adoptive family, and um, Vanita is the mother. Uh, Ruth and Sandeep are two of the children, and and it's just a family that's real. They're sharing with us uh, just their story about adoption. Uh, from India, about the, the beauty of it, about the brokenness of it, about the difficulties, about the highs and the lows. Uh, I mean, I'm excited to share this with you because it is a real story, a real interview with real people as we talk about um, real talk with real people. That's what this is. And I, I'm just thankful to them for their lives. They have uh, taken their experience and they, they now are able to share with others and they're, they're public speakers. Um, that share all around the country. So if you're looking for someone to come in and just really share the reality of adoption, this, this is a great, a great family to be able to um, help you with that. So we've also put on the show notes some of the uh, video um, of Sandeep uh, at the Refresh Conference a, a couple of years ago. Um, so you can check that out uh, on our show notes and anything else from this, uh, from this interview and from this episode, you can check out the show notes as well. Uh, what we, we're hoping you will also do out there. If you're listening, this is something that you really love. This podcast is something that's helped you and you believe is going to be able to help others. Yeah. We're going to ask you to, to get involved a little bit more, hopefully. And one of those things you can do, as we've talked about before, is you can review the podcast on iTunes. That helps get the word out there more. You can, uh, give, you know, leave a, leave a rating review there. You can also share your comments on Facebook so you can engage the conversation a bit more and that will introduce, um, you to us and so we can can get to know you a little bit better. Also share with other people on your social media outlets, but also word of mouth. Word of mouth is the best way. Just be able to share with people and tell them why you think it will help them. Because sometimes people just hear the word think orphan, hear that hear that name and they think, oh, I'm not interested in adoption. Or I'm not interested in father, foster care or whatever it might be. The fact of the matter is everyone is called to this work as we all know. And so you can hopefully help these folks to understand why these issues are important and why this will be something that will impact their lives and they can impact the lives of others. And the last thing that I want, want to share with people often ask, how, how do we fund this? And, you know, really the reality is we fund it by, uh, through people like you out there listening, people that are able to just help, um, uh, Providence uh, World, which is the the what's fueling this podcast right now, to be able to help fund this. So if you if that's something that that you're um, wanting to help with, something that you're interested in being a part of this financially as well to help keep this podcast going, uh, you can just go to providenceworld.com and go to the giving um, tab there, and you can you can help out that way. So we'll have that link on the on the show notes as well. So with all of that, thank you so much for being a part of this show. Thank you for engaging this conversation. And right now, we're going to go to the conversation I was able to have with the Thomas family. So here we go. Well, it is so great to have Sandeep, Vanita, and Ruth Thomas with me here today. Hey, guys, how you doing today? Good. Well. Good. Thank you. <laughs> 
Yeah, so there's there's a lot to get to today, and I, I'm I'm uh, I'm just so impressed by your lives and just what I've seen, what I've been able to uh, you know see online and just in in person, being able to meet you very briefly. I'm, I'm excited that I'm getting to know you guys better even today through this interview, um, and I'm really excited for our our audience to be able to get to know you guys to the extent they haven't heard you speak at a conference or somewhere else. But um, Sandeep, can you just start by sharing your story briefly and just how you got to be where you are today? Yeah, Phil, thank you. Uh, again, it's great to be on the show with you. Um, and uh, my story really starts back in India. So I was born in India, and that's a country of 1.2 billion people. And that is home to millions of orphans. Um, about 60 million Indian children under the age of six uh, live below the poverty line. And the poverty line, which is about two, roughly $2 a day. Uh, in fact, half the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. So that kind of puts things into perspective for you. Uh, in India alone, there are 170 million vulnerable children. And uh, I was one of those children. Uh, so I had a family of five, uh, my parents and two older sisters. And we lived in about a 250 square foot home in Bangalore. Um, and my father and mother, uh, birth father and birth mother, uh, both had menial jobs, um, uh, made, made some money. But, you know, the little money that my father made, he often spent it on alcohol. And he would come home drunk. He would uh, beat me up. Uh, he took me with him to the bars that he went to. And that really angered my uh, birth mother a lot um, because she didn't want me, you know, going down the lifestyle that my father uh, had and uh, didn't want him to influence me in that way. And um, actually, alcohol is a huge problem in, in poverty stricken areas, uh, especially among the men. Um, and it's just sad to see how it just destroys lives in that way. And that's something that my mother was, uh, wanting to protect me against. Um, and, uh, you know, she wanted me to be, be educated, not live a life like my father. So she wanted me to go to school and, um, and, and just have a different life. Uh, and I think out of desperation to kind of shock my birth father into reality of all the things, the influence that he had in my life, um, she threatened to take her life. And, uh, uh, one day I remember when I was five years old, uh, you know, they had constant arguments back and forth. Uh, and they had a pretty big one, um, that, that morning. And, uh, my father in anger took me and we walked away from the house. And as we were walking away, um, I could hear the uh, door slam in my house. And, um, and then, you know, we're still continuing to walk away in my, my five-year-old mind, uh, I, I just could sense that there was something wrong at that moment. And, um, I, I begged him to, to, to go back just to check on my, my mother. And as we, uh, after many times of asking, we finally walked back to the house. And as we approached the house, um, there was smoke pouring out of the doors and, and windows and, uh, the door was locked from the inside. And so we kicked, uh, the door open, uh, me and my father. And, uh, we opened the door to see my mother in flames, uh, on the living room, uh, floor. And so she, out of desperation had poured kerosene oil on herself and set herself on fire. Mm. Uh, and so quickly we, you know, frantically trying to put the fire out and, uh, then we had to rush her to the hospital. And, uh, that was the last time I, I ever saw her because she, she died a few days later. So, uh, my life was like literally shattered at that moment because I, I had, you know, I just witnessed something so horrific, um, at, at, at the age of five and then having to, to just go through all of those, those things, those memories in my head really affected me at that young of an age. And, um, 
after that, uh, life rapidly changed. So my sisters were, were sent to boarding school and uh, my alcoholic father uh, basically claimed he had a terminal illness and he couldn't take care of us kids anymore. Um, I su- and then uh, I, I think because I had witnessed uh, my mother's death, um, and this is where uh, the karma factor kind of plays in, and my mom can actually explain that a little bit more. Uh, you want to talk about the karma aspect? Um, so in India, karma is a huge uh, impact on society and culture. So when somebody has a, you know a bad life, they've had something bad happen to them. You know it could be poverty, it could be becoming orphaned, um, any kind of suffering. The belief is that they sinned a lot in their previous life, and so they're paying off the sins in this life. And so if anybody stepped in and helped them they would stop that payment. And so their next life would be bad. Mm. So it's really easy for society not to step in and care under the guise of karma. But consequently, because he had witnessed his mother's death, he was rejected by family and, you know, anyone who could have cared for him. So ultimately he was put into an orphanage Mm -hmm. because of that. So... Stepping back uh, on this end, uh, for me, when I was uh, little from my school, you know, they would take us to Mother Teresa's uh, orphanages in India. Mm-hmm. And every year, school kids, we would go there, play with the kids, give them some goodies. And so my family got connected to them. And over the years, I remember um, there was a little girl abandoned in the hospital when my brother was sick. We were just little at that time. And I remember wanting to take her home because somehow these kids touched our hearts. And you've got to remember, this is a culture where you do not adopt. You do not care for orphans. So, and even the Christian community very rarely would do that. You may do a few good works going there, but those kids' lives never intersect with yours. And I grew up in a fairly middle-class family in India. And I used to beg my parents and say, can we bring her home? And they were like, nope. You know, we just don't do such things. Mm-hmm. And yet God started planting a seed in my heart. And I, uh, we finally, my family immigrated to the U.S. Um, years ago. And I came here to study, to do my master's. And then I went back and got married. And one of the first things when I met my husband was, I asked him, can we adopt? Hmm. And this was to my family's horror. Mm-hmm. Because you don't talk about such things. Because if you want to do that, there's something wrong with you. And it was God who was at work because going against the culture was a big thing and it was him preparing our hearts for it. And at that point, my husband, uh, Peter, he had read um, Knowing God by J.F. Packer. Mm -hmm. And in that, there was a chapter on God's adoption of us. And that had been the first time he had seen that concept. And so even though he had not had the heart to adopt, when I mentioned it, he immediately said, well, God's done it for us. Why not? Yeah. So that was one of our first conversations when we met. Yeah, and God right. started laying a seed on that. But of course, you know, we had our own plans. We planned to have biological children and then adopt and, you know, being like oh, these big saviors. And God kind of came down hard and said, no. So we actually went through some situations. I actually lost a child uh, in a miscarriage. And, you know, we've come to the point where we said, okay, Lord, we'll do whatever you want. I mean, obviously our plans are not working out. We're going to trust you. 
And it was around that time that God brought Sandeep into the picture. Mm. It was a very unusual situation. He was in India. He had lost his uh, in-laws and, uh, I'm mean, sorry, his um, mother, his father. And at that point, my in-laws had contacted us from there. It was just a phone call. We rarely called. And it just came up in the conversation, hey, there's this kid, you know, this family, and this is happening. Normally, what would we do? We'd send money. We'd feel sad for them. And we might go about our work. That day, in that moment, it was God saying, take the child. Just nobody wanted him. Take the child. We didn't know his age. We didn't know it was a girl or a boy. We just knew there was a child in need. And God just said, do it. And a few hours later, we called back, called India, and said, we'll take the child. Hmm. And that's when we found out he was five and a half, had been through all this trauma, and that it was not going to be easy. But of course, in a, you know, our minds, uh, not knowing too much about adoption, and the, this was 20 years ago, there wasn't much out there. We believed that love and fresh air, and he's going to be fine. So that was how we stepped into it. But on the other side, we got a lot of negativity when we wanted to adopt him. So again, because it's culturally not accepted, people told us we were stupid. You know, even if we had to, you just should take a baby. Uh, why would you take a big kid like this with all this, all these problems? Every word out of his mouth is a lie. He's not worth it. He's going to come and destroy your lives. We thank God today that it was God who held on and who convinced both my husband and me that this was the child God wanted us to take. Absolutely. So, and I think I remember, you know, they faced, uh, they talked about it, talked about it a few years after I was adopted, just the opposition and negativity that they faced, even from family members, um, and just not getting uh, the right welcome uh, from the family and and friends and relatives. Um, And I came home, I think the whole process took about six months, and I came literally to a new country, had to learn a new language. You were about uh, six. six. I was six when I was adopted, yeah. Uh, new parents, uh, new language. I didn't know English, uh, new culture. Uh, they also gave me a new name, uh, Sunday, uh, which means light. And um, But it was a painful, that began the painful journey for us because, we, like I said, we, there wasn't a warm welcome for us when we came. It was just us. And then we just went, in, went into our home and, and that began life. Um, and then now were you in India at that time or you were in the U S you were, you came back to the U S or are you still in India? Yeah, we lived in New Jersey okay. at that time. That's what I thought. I just wanted to and make sure so that we, that's why it took us about six uh, you know, months to take that India. Sure. You Christians could not adopt mm-hmm. uh, by law. It was only um, guardianship. And that would have been a problem because his dad was still alive. Sure. Even though he had relinquished him. And um, I think it was interesting because at that time when we were doing the paperwork, we still don't know why, but we just chose to put two kids on the visa forms. And we still have no clue why we did that. But we were like, yeah, you know, let's just do it. It says two, let's do it. And we went to India to bring him Hmm. a few months later. But, uh, and Ruth will pick up on that part of the story. But before that, I wanted to say we did make a choice to give them a new name. Uh, so Sandeep, we changed his name to Sandeep and Nathaniel. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, in scripture, whenever something happened, significant happened throughout, God gave new names. Mm-hmm. And so we made that choice that, you know, that was his old life. That is gone. And this is, behold, everything is new. Right. 
he came from a Hindu family. He was coming into a Christian family. You know, he had the uh, chance of knowing Jesus here. And so we changed his name very deliberately to Sandeep Nathaniel. And Nathaniel was actually, Jesus said, there's no guile in him. And you have to remember, this was a kid where they, we were told every word from his mouth is a lie. So it was literally saying, Lord, you take over. Yeah, absolutely. And because we were going into blindsided. Absolutely. So can we just uh, hear a little bit from Ruth then on that? And yeah. We'll come back to you, Sandy, to kind of pick up the story and get, get some ideas of, uh, not ideas, but just some, you talked about the, the tough the tough journey and the tough side of, of the adoption as well that we'll get into. Um, but Ruth, just want to hear a little bit from you and kind of from your perspective and what your story is, how you ended up in, uh, in the Thomas family. Well, the, she started off by saying there's no reason for why they would fill out two adoption papers when adopting one child. So that alone is just the grace of God that um, he would just start the process and have it happen that way. But um, they went to a, um, a hospital and they were looking at the children um, and a woman came and brought out a baby girl and said, this is your daughter. And so it's not like where you can say, no, we're good. Thanks. Um, but they, uh, they said, you know, we're going to adopt adopt this baby girl and so that's where I joined the Thomas household and I was given a new name um, Sneha, Sneha Ruth Sneha means friend and um, Ruth means loving companion so putting that together they thought that it was a perfect new name and um, God would continually just um, work in my life to to transform basically <laughs> but um india is a country where more than 50 million girl babies are missing due to female gender side just because of the fact that they are girls means that they come with more um responsibility that is on the parents such as um finding somebody to marry them paying dowry um the fact that if, um, they're, if when they get older and the husband dies, that woman is no longer marriageable. Um, there's just a lot of um, prejudice against women in India. It's just a societal norm. Um, and so because of that, um, my life being saved in India is just a miraculous event. It should not have happened. Um, and I'll explain more later and how it actually connects to um, a documentary, but there was a woman who was a friend of ours who went to India to go and adopt her son from the same place where I was being adopted. And they looked out at the lake, which was behind um, this place and says, uh, behind this hospital and asked what it was used for. And they said, oh, that's where they drown all of the baby girls. Mm. And so when I heard that, putting that in perspective, that it was just what so many feet so, so close to that place but God chose a whole new destination for my life. And from that place, I was able to be adopted by the Thomases. Mm -hmm. Again, is another miracle. Yeah. So just already in the span of this, this year of my life, I've been saved so many times. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's just, it's ultimately just God's grace. There's no reason and there's no explanation. That's but um, I was saved and it's now just my job and with the help of my family to make sure that other girls are able to be saved too. Yeah. You know, and that's something that it's, it's so, you talk about the, that, 
the documentary, the movie that's that's being that's I think it's been made and it's going to be either coming out or coming or is out now. The pedals yeah. in the dust and and can you just speak to that a little bit? And, and this goes to the worldview. And we talked about worldview a lot on the show. Just that so much is about worldview. And in India, it's such a I mean, especially when you compare it to the U.S., it's so different. And you know, really compared to anywhere from what I've heard, it's just it's it's its own place <laughs> that really there's nothing quite like it and when you talk about the gender side when you talk about even the the recent movie lion that came out it was, it was really highlighting you know really i mean it's 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 a similar you know i mean it's it's similar it's obviously different every story is different but these ideas that um are being now put into film that are so poignant in the story that is shared. Can you just share kind of what these movies are, are doing, how they're portraying the story, how it's accurate, how it's, and then also um, really how we can engage it. Um, it's kind of a big question, obviously, but what are, what are these movies sharing, especially this Petals in the Dust? How is it really bringing to light the gender side? Um, and then how can we get involved realistically um, coming from such a different worldview, how can we understand it better and how can we get involved here in the U.S. or, or other parts of the world that are not India? Mm-hmm. So Petals in the Dust is, uh, like I said, a documentary about the gender side of women in India, with it being the fourth most dangerous place for women to live. Um, it really branches out into all of the avenues and gives a lot of viewpoints from um, doctors and from people who have worked in this field, women who have been survivors of things like acid attacks and other um, horrific tragedies. Um, And they talk about how it's a struggle from the womb to the tomb for a woman. Mm. Um, So this documentary just sheds, is is meant for educational purposes to shed light on um, the woman's plight growing up in a place like India. Um, Ultimately, it comes down to the value that we place on life. Um, As Christians, we know that Christ values everybody's life because we are made in the image of Jesus, made in the image of God, and we are we need to educate the church more about this issue. Um, because ultimately, um, being pro-life doesn't mean that we're just advocating for the unborn. It means that we're protecting and loving on um, and serving the orphan and the vulnerable children who do need an advocate, who are already, who have survived that first stage but who still needs someone to advocate on behalf of them. So being a pro-life, being pro-life for the unborn is very important, but it's after that. We can't just say that we're going to be pro-life and protect the unborn and then leave them after that stage. Um, I've become the Washington ambassador for Petals in the Dust, so what I will do is I will host screenings of this documentary and allow people to come see it, um, talk about what they can do, how they can get involved, whether it's financially. But the first thing for this movie is education, because you can't get involved in something that you're not educated about. Right. So that's what Petals in the Dust is really focusing on. That's great. That's great. Well, now I want to I just kind of shift back to the story um, uh, of your adoption. And, you know, it wasn't all, speaking of... Um, you know, petals of flowers and roses. It wasn't all rosy when you got back into, you know, when you came and you yeah. know, Thomas home. Is that, and, and I, I know I've heard your story a little bit, but I, I, can you just share, Sandeep, kind of back to when you came into the home and in the last, you know, really however many years since then, mm-hmm. um, it, it was up, it was definitely a roller coaster. And so can you, can you share about that and, you know, just how, you know, there's some highs and some lows and what that looked like? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, 
The transition definitely wasn't easy, right? So they suddenly, uh, a couple in New Jersey went from having no kids to uh, having two adopted kids from India. Um, one, a six-year-old with traumatic stress that he just went through, and uh, and then a baby girl, a 10-month-old baby girl. And so that was a difficult trans- transition, uh, uh, along with the fact that we didn't have much help and support from family, family and, and relatives and friends. Uh, my dad was a computer scientist and he worked long hours in, in New York. And uh, my mom actually was uh, an engineer. Um, and she has uh, two masters. So she had to quit her job to just stay home uh, to help me um, because I just needed that much attention, that much care, that much love uh, and just to, just to fit into to the new environment that I was in. So she had the hard task of, of just helping me day and night, coaxing, disciplining, teaching me. And, uh, it was very, I made it, of course, I made it tough on them too, because I insulated myself from the love that they had, uh, because I didn't want to be hurt again. Someone so close like my mother, because I, I, like my birth mother, I lost her and I didn't want to experience that loss again. So I, I insulated my, myself from, from my adopted parents' love. And, uh, you know, the other things I, I made sure that, you know, that they weren't my real parents and she wasn't my real mom and nothing really mattered to me in life. And, uh, there was a phrase that they described those, those years as it got increasingly worse that, you know, I was just describing as the walking dead. Mm. Um, and it was just a difficult transition, I think for, for them, for me. Uh, and, and like I said, it got, it got increasingly worse. Um, over the years because the trauma just brought out more anger, more frustration. Uh, the pain was really real in our, in our family. Um, and then I just want to take it back to, uh, this part was really painful and lonely. Um, but I want to touch on family preservation just a little bit. Um, there is a lot of, of, of new thoughts and ideas on how important family preservation is. And, uh, that's something that was uh, taken away from me. Uh, because I, I, I did get separated from my um, alcoholic father and my two sisters that were the only living members of my family. Um, I think more could have been done from uh, my relatives uh, to make sure that we were kept together, that I was with my siblings or that all three of us were taken care of. Um, and there were resources back then to do that. And unfortunately, it wasn't talked about. It wasn't addressed. Um, so... And no one was willing to do that, step in and do that. So, uh, and yes, God works in mysterious ways and he used adoption uh, to, to, to help uh, tra- transform my life. Um, but there was real hurt and brokenness uh, uh, nonetheless. So throughout my childhood years growing up from six to uh, my late into my teen years, you know, uh, each year was worse. And I just became an expert in creating chaos at home. Uh, passive aggressive. I wasn't, I, I didn't do uh, what my parents told me to do. Uh, simple things like doing homework. And uh, it was very difficult in the beginning too, because it used to take me hours. And that's where my mom stepped in to just help me sit and, and read two pages in a book mm. uh, or to answer basic math questions. Like my mind just couldn't process um, all this new information that I was being taught because of the trauma, because my brain was actually really affected by what, by what I saw when I was younger. And um, I often acted without a conscience and I couldn't foresee the outcomes of my actions. Um, and I, I couldn't logically think or, or, or make good decisions. I uh, felt like a loser among my peers. I navigated towards the bad kids in school. Uh, and within the home environment, um, I triangulated and played my parents against each other. 
Mm. And I, I often made my mom look like the target um, in, in all of these scenarios. But I was, a, I was a good kid on the outside. So no one on the outside really knew the problems that we were experiencing at home. And if we went and told anybody, they always saw me as like this good, good kid that always you know, listened to his parents and did what they asked me to do. But that was just a front that I was putting on on the outside. Mm. Um, and that just, you know, it just kind of gave people the, uh, the wrong message, actually, because they thought we were doing fine. Um, so, uh, but at home, we were just, we were just falling apart, right? And uh, distraught, wounded. And back then, there weren't, uh, there wasn't research and, and studies done to, uh, to explain um, what a rewired brain um, uh, was like. The kids that experienced uh, PTSD or, or RAD, uh, what are the outcomes of those things? And uh, now we have more knowledge and understanding of what those behavioral things would look like in a child uh, having experienced trauma. But at that time, my parents were at a complete loss because no one, no one really knew uh, any of that information. Um, so it was a really, really painful due to having to be that. Well, uh, I think literally we, you know, when it comes to schooling, we knew he had to study, but his brain was so damaged that he couldn't logically think or function. Mm -hmm. And we literally tried public school. We tried private school. We tried homeschooling. And, uh, you know, nothing was working. He just could not do anything. Um, in desperation, in the middle of that, actually, an uncle of mine stepped in and took him for about 10 months. And we didn't know anything about respite care in those days, but he just saw that I was falling apart mm -hmm. and he offered to take him in. Mm -hmm. And this was, he was in California. We lived in New Jersey. And it was during those months that my husband and I really prayed and almost overnight, we realized Sandeep needed my husband's presence more. He was, you know, now in the teen years, he was a fifth grader. And, you know, living in New Jersey, going to New York, the commute and the long hours of the internet boom, it was just not cutting it for us. So almost overnight, my husband got a job at Microsoft here in Washington, took a job which is way lower. He was an executive management there, gave that up, came here and took one of the lower end uh, positions to have the pay and said Sandeep's life is worth more mm. because we just need to be nearby, we need to be available for him. Uh, and that was a hard journey for him because it kind of derailed his career and things. But we look back now, uh, years later, almost 14 years later, and see the value of that. And so I would encourage dads, uh, particularly with sons, the importance of being there, you know, though we did it out of desperation, today we can look back and say, thank you, Lord, mm -hmm. for forcing us to do that. And the second thing I would say is we were desperate about schooling, and we finally found virtual schools. These are virtual public schools. I don't know whether you've heard of it, uh, but, you know, in our case at least, all three of our kids have gone through that for years. And it, it took years, and it took a lot of effort on my part, but the, it, it is a public school system. They provide you with all the information and all the books and curriculum, but we were able to control what he was studying, and everything was online. So it wasn't like homeschooling, because homeschooling was going against me. Right. He wouldn't listen to anything. But virtual school, there were teachers available, and so they worked with us and got through. And to the point of a kid who was in ninth grade, was 350 assignments behind. Wow. 
today is a Europe, University of Washington graduate. Mm-hmm. You know, only God could do that. Right. But God used virtual schools to um, help okay. them. And that's a resource that a lot of parents don't know about. Right. And that is available, you know. Yeah, in- we'll, yeah we'll get... Uh- We'll get a link to some of this stuff too. I'll get from you guys. Mm-hmm. We'll get it out there for people to be able to tell. But kind of coming back to that, Sandeep. So, what was the turning point? Um, you know, for you in your mind. You know, when did you just kind of click like, this isn't working? I gotta, you know, mm-hmm. I, I gotta turn this around. What What, what was that? Yeah. Um, so that was really uh, in my high school years. Um, I went. My parents were kind of at the end of the rope. Didn't know really what to do. And uh, they actually talked uh, a few times of even sending me back to India uh, to a boarding school there. Um, And God, they're just deep in prayer and uh, getting advice from people as well. Uh, God kind of showed one summer, uh, a few months, a few months before the summer actually hit that a mission trip uh, opportunity uh, with teen missions. Um, and what they do is they, they teens from all over the U S come to, um, Florida, uh, the base there and they get trained and equipped to go out into different countries and serve on a two month mission trip. Um, so that's literally, I mean, I, I, my parents just found out about that. We began raising funds and support and their intention was when they send me on this mission trip that, you know, I would see, uh, poverty. I would see orphans. Um, I would see them in a different light. And then I'd start to appreciate the, the life that I had a little bit more um, because it would, reality would hit. And I could see that, you know, there are other kids out in the world that are struggling uh, in, in way worse uh, situations and circumstances than I probably ever have faced. So, um, you know, so that was underway. I went in and my grandma, actually, she put together a prayer team uh, around that time. Uh, just of various people um, with church and, and family just to to surround me and my family in prayer uh, because it was a really, really difficult year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I think this mission trip, they were kind of looking at it like, wow, this can really be a great tool. Thank you, God, for opening this opportunity uh, because they were really close to sending me back to India, actually. So this was this was like an answer prayer for them. Um, so I went on the mission trip two months, uh, to Africa and I stayed there, uh, you know, went, lived in tents, met thousands of orphans and, uh, in, in much worse situations than I was. But, and, and I came back from that, uh, two months later, but coming back from that, uh, what my parents had hoped that I'd see, I did see that, but then it also did, uh, the opposite, um, uh, work in my life because it made me more of an think at least think I was an independent person because I just lived in a country all by myself. And it kind of just built in me this desire to like say that, you know, I can handle life on my own now. Uh, so I was more, more rebellious after I came back and, um, it was more aggressive. And I, I, I made it a point to them that I didn't need their help anymore, uh, because I could manage on my own. Uh, and that was the year that, you know, I attempted to, uh, take my life. Mm. I ran away from home. Um, and, and all of this, it just became again, increasingly worse. And what was meant to be a good thing actually turned out into a horrible thing because it just, I, my mind just played, uh, played it back and it, it put it on me. And it's like, wow, I, now I've experienced life. Now I know what it's like to be away from my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can, I can go out and do all these things by myself. And another one of the things that I did was when I was uh, 17, was I chose to drive um, my grandpa's car 
actually without my license. So my parents always, I mean, they said, Hey, we want, we're here to encourage you. We're here to help you. Just, just do what we ask you to do. And you know, that trust will get built and the relationship will get built. And one of those things was, you know, uh, be responsible and you, you get your driver's license, but I didn't want to do that. Uh, so instead I just took the car out without my license when my parents were out, my grandparents were out and uh, I got caught by, um, uh, the cops and it was just in my neighborhood, just one street over here. I didn't you know, to go out into the city or anything like that. But, uh, the cops ended up catching me. I even ended up lying to the cops saying that I had my license and I didn't have it in the car. Uh, so thinking back to that time, I, I think the, the two cops that were involved in that interaction with me, uh, there was a lot of grace, uh, even poured out in that situation from, from the cops. Um, I think, uh, them realizing, you know, that I was a messed up teenager and then my parents were called and, uh, I remember they even said, uh, what did they say to, say to you? And then yeah, we were actually so desperate and we were like, yeah, you know, if they're going to take him to jail, even for the day we're ready for that. I mean, not right. what we want, but if that's what God is going to use, mm-hmm. fine, let them take him. And we go there, you know, we get the call, we go there. And the older of the two cops looks at us and says, you've got a good kid here. Mm. And we were like, uh-uh, you don't know. Him. <laughs> we didn't tell him that, but we don't know him. And the cop out of the blue just said, and you know, and the reason I say this is this is so, such a bad rap often for cops, mm-hmm. but God used them that day. And he said, when I was 17, I messed up and somebody gave me grace. Mm. And he looked at Sandeep and said, I want to do the same for you. Yeah. He said, you've got good parents, you've got a good life. And he didn't know he was adopted or any of that. Right. He just looked at him and said, you've got good parents that go and make something of your life. Hmm. And that was it. He sent him home. Not even, I mean, just a warning at home. Yeah. And we were actually in shock and we were pretty mad at him yeah. about yeah. it. So, so that's, yeah, so that scenario really just uh, played on my heart. So my grandpa always had to go and apologize to him that, you know, he didn't know I took his car. So uh, in that moment, uh, my grandpa actually asked me, I was wearing a, a camp shirt and he asked me, you know, how can you be wearing uh, a shirt like that? And then making the choice that you're making in life, they, they just don't go together. Uh, so God. Yeah, know, can, I, can I just stop yeah. that? This is a kid who had been given the gospel every day for the 11 years. Mm-hmm. And that day, you know, my dad just looked at him and said, hey, how can you wear that Christian t-shirt right. and be this way? So I think God just miraculously used that moment to really touch my heart, just open my eyes to the fact of how sinful and and, and desperate uh, I I, I need to be uh, for him. And uh, I think ultimately it's just just hope in the Lord, trust in in God that, you know, he is my answer. Uh, My life was a chaotic mess uh, and I desperately needed to go to my Savior. Um, And since then... Uh, you know, I, I really, I think gratitude has really set in, and that's one thing I'd say to uh, adoptees out there. Um, I think when you understand what your life is and where you are today, um, and who the Lord is and how He's played a role in your life, I think once you understand the Savior, you'll also begin to have deep gratitude for the things that you have in life. Uh, I'd lost a lot. Uh, my life was a complete mess, but then looking back in retrospect after, after accepting Christ and I, it wasn't like, you know, immediately I started noticing these things, but changes were made slowly from that point onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and at that moment I also was able to, uh, I had the deep gratitude for what my parents had, had my adopted parents had done in my life. 
I'd also been able to forgive uh, the past, yeah. forgive uh, my birth father who I was angry against, forgive my birth mother, um, and, and my entire past, uh, which I was just so angry against. Um, and that, that's the encouragement I give to, to adoptees. Really, the hope is in the Lord, and uh, that, that's the true answer. And, um, no, I think Ruth can still know yeah. the effects of it. Yeah, and, and Ruth is going to share just a little bit more because throughout those years, she was kind of in, in, in my shadow. Yeah, right. Uh, experiencing the trauma uh, of everything that I went through. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, a lot of the attention, because um, Sunip had come in with a lot of PTSD um, and a lot of other issues, a lot of the attention had to be focused on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that... While I made my own decisions, I know that it manifested itself in the way that I tested. I test my parents' love for me. Um, I think that was a, a big way. Um, it manifested way in the way that I lied to my parents. Um, I think because it was a control issue for me. Um, for my adoption story, I, I viewed it as years and there are times even now that I still view it as, you know, what God has... Sure, God's done all this great stuff for me, but it would have been a lot nicer if I had just been with my with my birth family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's hard to put it into um, into actual into proper words because when you've when you've lost, um, you feel you feel a deep a deep sadness, and you're grieving and. Um, I think for me, that really was brought out by the way that I treated. I know that a lot of my anger was directed towards my, my, my adopted mom because, because I felt like she replaced my first mother. I had to take it out on someone and I sure wasn't going to blame myself. And I didn't see any point in blaming. I, I did blame God, but I didn't see any point in blaming a God. I didn't really believe in but I could blame something tangible and something there in front of me. And so I blamed um, my adoptive mother. Um, And there are days that I would hate my parents because I viewed them as the enemy because I thought that they took me away from my, my real family, that they removed me out of my, my, uh, my initial home. Um, So fighting them was like the only source of release um, because I felt, I felt caged and they, it wasn't like they were making me feel this way. They had given me, they put me in classes and given me lessons for things that I love to do. And they were, they were definitely investing in my life. But for me, it was, I'm not with my first family, my family. So I'm just here on accident. You adopting me was a mistake. You didn't mean to. Um, and so when they talked about like filling out two adoption papers instead of the one, I was like, oh, that was just a mistake. And so my entire part of that, that story was just a complete, it shouldn't have been there. Um, as, as a baby, I couldn't um, articulate my thoughts and my needs. So I felt, a, I, as I grew up, I felt a, a need to control every single other aspect of my life. I think that's why lying was such a big thing because I could start the lie, control the lie, um, manipulate people's emotions, triangulate people against one another and just wreak complete chaos and havoc. And I think that was where, um, and obviously with Sandeep, I, I picked up, I, he, even though he was starting to make changes, um, around 17, I was starting to suddenly pick up all of it, the bad things 
that I had learned from him. And basically, it was a repeat cycle of what they had experienced. Um, I love to I love to control situations because every, in my opinion, everything in my life was so out of control, and I um, I didn't really have a voice as to what was going to happen. Um, another big thing was fantasizing. I definitely fantasized a lot about my first family. Um, I think it, it happened a lot when, you know, I would do something wrong and then my, my mom would yell at me, um, or she disciplined me or something. And I would say, or I would think, you know what, if I lived in India, I'm sure that my birth family wouldn't have done this for me. My first family wouldn't have done this for me because they would have loved me and they would have cared for me and they would have protected me. And then it just goes on and on and on about the things that they would have done for me without seeing the fact that, you know what, they did, they did let me go, but it was probably for, there was probably a really good reason behind it. Um, a lot of things, uh, would kind of trigger when people, um, I know, so, well, actually something that was a major trigger was, um, seeing ultrasound pictures. Um, we have a younger, my parents' biological child, a younger sister, um, Sarah, and, um, my mom had a picture of her ultrasound in her drawer, which she did not mean for me to see at all. Like she never had shown it to me before, but we were clearing out some stuff and I took it and I picked it up and I saw it all on my own. Um, and that really hurt because I have no information about my birth mother, um, or my first family, except the fact that she was unmarried and she gave me up and said she didn't want contact. Um, and a piece of paper with half a thumbprint. That's all I had. But as soon as I saw that ultrasound, I was like, wow, what else am I missing out on? Mm. So I would go through like the original documents and see kind of what I was, um, kind of the information that I was losing. Um, and I was, I was 12. So I was kind of in the formative teenage years. And so as soon as that happened, I took out my adoption papers that my parents had, which had that information about my birth mother and then the the other information and I used and I took it from 13 to 17 and I tucked it under my pillow and I would sleep with it and I would look at it constantly and that honestly just fed on my anger and my um just the way that I really really hated my adoptive parents I told my mom you'll never be my real mom uh mm. I have I have a mom and she wants me and I would just really really upset um about just the whole adoption situation. Right. Um, but ultimately the thing that, that really was a big, was a big change. I think exactly what Sandeep said was gratitude. Um, because without gratitude, you're unable to see what you've been given, what you've been saved from. And even in history, you can go on a mission trip and see it and you can still not be grateful. Yeah. But, um, I, I was talking and we were, well, our family was talking and I was thinking about the best way to illustrate it. And I was thinking of a tree and the roots of a tree have to be rooted in something deep. And that has to be Jesus. Um, it doesn't matter if you're adopted. It just, if you're a believer, your roots have to be in Jesus because if your roots aren't, then you're not going to be able to stand strong no matter what comes your way. Um, the trunk of the tree has to be gratitude. That is the support of the entire of the entire tree. There's not a tree without a trunk. Um, and the branches are the parents and the mentors and the people who have stepped into your life and who come alongside you to support you in the various aspects of your journey. Um, the fruit is how your life is impacting others um, and how you're growing and how you're 
feeding yourself from the roots, from what God is teaching you, from the Bible. Um, I know that my my dad has made it a specific. Um, he's made it so that we do family devotions almost every night, so that we spend time in the Word of God because he knows he um, and we know that there's no other hope other than Jesus. Because between Sandeep and I, I think we've tried every every possible other avenue of blaming others, of lying, of cheating, of stealing, of manipulation, of everything. And there's just no hope that ultimately you're going to get. Absolutely. And so the eternal hope in Jesus is the only answer that there is. Yeah, I think Satan is, is active and he's always working. Uh, he is like uh, yeah, a roaring lion, uh, just out to, to attack anything good that is coming. Uh, in, in a family, a family that, that trusts and believes the Lord. And I think that's one of the things that, that if I think back over these years, uh, with how my parents, uh, you know, ran our family, it was just steeped in God's word, um, just family devotions, making sure that we went to church and not as a tool to like say, Hey, we're going to do these things and that's going to become, uh, you know, that's going to save you. But I think that that involvement and just having the scripture around us, uh, just really always made it, uh, you know, in our faces, like, wow, we have this amazing God that we serve. And however much we push back on it, it continually was there in the, in the back of our head. So I would encourage parents to continue, you know, really just teach scripture to your children um, and do devotions with them. Take them to encourage them to come to church uh, and memorize scripture. Um, I think those are practical tools for families uh, to use uh, because it is a tough journey. Satan's active and working. But uh, we have a God who's much bigger than that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I know that there's so much more we could talk about. Um, unfortunately, the time's coming to a close here for this interview. But there are there are some blogs out there. We're not going to, we can, um, you know, you can, you can search out there, if you use out there in the audience that really talk about these important issues to understand that there is, you know, adoption is tough. Adoption is really um, tough for adoptive parents, for adoptees, um, for those helping, you know, for the, for the extended family, for other, for the birth families, for everyone involved. Um, there's so many issues and, you know, I know there's, um, several blogs actually that, uh, Sandeep was able to share with me that just are, are voices for adoptees who are hurting. And, and I, I encourage adoptees to, to, to seek other adoptees out, to encourage each other, as you said, for the gratitude for, to, to show gratitude, to be able to hear that from someone who understands, um, what you're going through for parents to be able to encourage each other, um, and for extended family to be able to do that as well. But, you know, I, I want to, I want to just finish up with you guys to, to just hear, um, you know, what, what has encouraged you that you, you know, maybe have read, watched or listened to, um, has impacted your thinking on the issues we talked about today and really how we can love orphan and vulnerable children, uh, with excellence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. There is a lot of talk and blogs, um, uh, voices of adoptees. Uh, they're, they're really, from what we've seen, they're really angry with their adoption and they're angry at the way life is right now. And, um, and that's what we're, we're working on something to kind of, uh, give a different perspective on uh, those who have accepted Christ, who know that their hope is in the Lord, uh, who are, yes, they're angry with their adoption, but they, they've also realized uh, the gratitude aspect of it and that their hope is only in the Lord. And we're trying to get voices like that to combat those voices that are uh, hitting out against adoption. Uh, but I think the blogs that we've read, the articles that we come across, uh, some various um, pastors and uh, people that are uh, just involved in orphan care around the world uh, that we, we, we really come together as a family. Um, uh, my wife, uh, my, my parents and my two sisters, 
just come to talk about various issues. Uh, what is what does it mean to really uh, have uh, follow the heart of God and to take care of orphans and widows, and, and how does that look like? Do uh, you want to share? Um, I think what I would like to add on to that is um, I now volunteer with KFO, mm-hmm. and I have had the privilege over the last few months of connecting with network leads around the world. And I love that because I think what I'm seeing and probably for the first time that I'm able to share with the kids is to see the suffering and the losses that a lot of these people have gone through as children. And yet, you know, they they love and they trust in the Lord and really just God seeking after them, bringing them. And then the impact they are making in their communities and their countries. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely awesome to see. And so we recognized, and you know, just again, God's grace, that one of the ways of healing is when adoptees who have lost, there is brokenness, but when they can take that to the Lord, surrender it, and then start serving in their communities, and you know, really impacting people, uh, I think that gives them more hope and healing because there's a purpose in their own lives. But I think it's also very important for them to speak up and really as adoptive families, and we do this as a family, because I think there's a lot of anger between adoptees and adoptive parents, even as they've grown older. And I think the love and uh, care, I mean, we've been through everything, but the love and uh, care that God has given us for each other, it's just Him, because there were enough situations to say, you know what, I don't want this. I've had enough with you and I'm going to walk away. But we have chosen, even now, Sandeep is married and you know, they come back every week, we spend time. And part of our mission is to educate, educate the church, educate the Indian community. Mm-hmm. Now the Indian community is a lot like Asian, most Asian culture, thrives on success. And if you're not successful by the world standards, I mean, it's high education, um, with two jobs, you know, having the great home, living the life. Mm-hmm. If you don't have those things, you are considered a failure and worthless. Yeah. And that's very common in India. And because of that, you know, when we adopted Sandeep, almost consistently it would be like, oh, he's not going to amount to anything. He can't do much. You know, why would he take a child like this? You're going to just destroy your lives. And yes, you know, our lives are not successful the normal way. Peter and I had dreams. We had our plans. We had our education. We had our life set. It required taking that to the Lord and God taking us on an entirely different plan. So we use those and say, this is of the Lord. And I think, you know, the verse Jesus saying when he came and started his ministry, that he came to preach the gospel to the poor. He came to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. And I think if as Christians we can look at orphan care and, you know, vulnerable children care that way, we would really make a difference. We were just challenged by a social worker from India who said, what is the purpose of your education or your religion? If you have never sat down with a child in need, look them in the eye and care for them and really care. She said, what is the point of anything else that you achieve in life? And when we look back, you know, and I know I'm, we're talking more from the Indian perspective because that's our background, Absolutely. even though we don't go. But I think this is true of most developing nations in the world. With the number of vulnerable children, most people who can, most families who can step out and care, and whether that is adopting or fostering or maybe supporting someone in their churches, 
You know, God calls everybody, James 1, 27, to care. And I think I would challenge families and, uh, you know, anyone, singles, families, anybody, and say, ask God, ask God and step out there. There are millions of children who need this. 170 million vulnerable children in India. It's mind-boggling. That's half the U.S. population. Uh, a large number of them are orphaned. The need is huge. And I think the only thing I would digress on this is looking at the Lion movie. Mm-hmm. That was a fairly good representation of what it's like, life is like for an orphan. Mm. The suffering, the institutional institutions that they were put into, the literally survival of the fittest on the streets of India, that could have been Sandeep. So looking at where he is today, you know, or looking at Ruth and seeing that her life could have been taken, it's worth it for any family at any cost to step out and care. That's my challenge. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, I want to finish up and I'll let one of you, you guys can, you guys can fight over who gets to answer this question, but uh, what one person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? One person, uh, I can't really name uh, one person, maybe a mom fan, but uh, I think for me, uh, it's just, actually, for, I'll be honest, I think uh, my parents have, um, because I think they have exemplified what the gospel is. Um, Jesus has essentially, we're, we're all orphans, and he has come to rescue us and pick us up out of the the pit and the sinful mire that we're in and has delivered us from that into uh, uh, his richly kingdom in heaven. And he gives us that that free gift of salvation. So uh, I think for me, it's it's just more personal because that that part Mm -hmm. of the redemption story is is like in my face every day because that's literally what happened to me. I was picked up from a different country and I was brought here and I was given a new life. Right. And that's, that's the whole, um, that's, that's the adoption, adoption story here, here on earth. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. So for me, I'll say that that's my parents. Um, obviously there's a lot of authors and pastors that we've listened to along the way. Um, but, uh, and I, I give that as an encouragement out uh, to uh, others out there as well. I think there's a lot of information out there. Um, but again, it truly just goes back to um, the gospel and uh, or- orphans uh, are, are close to the heart of God. Um, I think um, we were reading a verse in Proverbs uh, 31, actually, uh, where it says, be a voice to the voiceless. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, speak out for those, mul- those who are vulnerable and those who are needy. And it's just Old Testament, New Testament, wherever you look, it's just um, involves taking care of the oppressed, taking care of the needy. And that is, you do that, I think that brings you closer to, to God's heart. Because that's where it is. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ruth and Vanita and Sandeep. And just for your sharing, your heart sharing, just being vulnerable with us today. Um, you know, there's more out there we'll have on our show notes. You can get their stories, different talks. You can even see Sandeep doing a little Bollywood dancing, um, uh, there online. You know, it's amazing what you can find when you just Google it. So, um, 
But uh, thank you so much. And I, I am so uh, excited, um, as I said, for everyone to just be able to hear, hear your story, but also just be able to understand um, the impact that uh, you have had on each other, but hopefully mm-hmm. that you can have on other lives as well that uh, to encourage them, as you said, to have gratitude. And that's, that's important for everyone. That's important for all of us, for me every day to be great, you know, to show gratitude for what God has given us. So thank yeah. you so much, guys. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Well, thanks again, Sandeep, Ruth, and Vanita. That is the first time that we've had three people on an interview. We've had two before, now three. Maybe someday we'll get four. Who knows? But uh, right now, we're going to be able to hear from Karen. But before we do that, I want to make sure you remember that after Karen and I talk for a little bit about the uh, interview, we got uh, part uh, four of the blog series that I was doing, talking about the blog post that I did on the five lessons that I learned in 2017, um, as well as the recommendations. But before we get to those things that hopefully will bring you some more um, things to think about and to learn from, Karen, what did, what did you learn from this interview? What did you, what did you take away from it? Yeah, there's so many different, um, I think important and also really incredibly honest and authentic aspects of this interview, which I really valued coming from my perspective as a clinical psychologist that works so closely with families who've grown their families through foster care or adoption. And so I was really tracking with a number of things that all three of our guests were having to say, but particularly when um, Sandeep was talking about how his story from the beginning included so much trauma. And as he talked about that in the interview um, and how that just impacted the way that he even viewed his story in his new family and the way that he viewed his parents and um, his adoptive parents. And I think it's so important for families who are growing through foster care or adoption to really, really understand that when children have experienced trauma, abuse, and neglect, that it absolutely impacts the way that they think about the world, the way that they perceive the world and impacts what they value. And it very much impacts the way that they um, believe people are viewing them. And so I think that's going to tie in really nicely too with your blog, with your blog post um, about the lessons that you learned, Phil. But yeah, the authenticity and just um, realness of the impact that trauma had on seeing deep's life was really relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And how that trauma also played out in the family, how it played out in his sister in the mom and just all the relationships the different, the different things there. Um, yeah, absolutely. That was, that was something that stuck out to me as well. The, the other, one of the other things that really was, was interesting and kind of cool to me was just the importance, um, of, and the meaning in the names they renamed their oh, children yeah. and just very, and cool. very, yeah. very intentional with that and spoke into it and how both of them speak to the, the importance of that in their lives too. Right. Um, yeah. and, uh, how, how important is that? That's just something to, to think about. It's, it's really a fresh beginning in that given the trauma given everything does how does that play into even from a from a psychology standpoint is that something that's important there too i think it can be i think that there's really kind of two two camps 
our two sides mm-hmm. of this um, question and, and discussion. Um, you know, personally, um, our children were adopted when they were about eight years old, and we chose from another perspective to mm-hmm. keep their African names. And we chose that from the perspective of really wanting to value the name that their birth and first family members had given them and to value their mm-hmm. culture. But I absolutely love um, the way that Vanita explained that there is a newness within this. This is a new name. And from a um, faith-based and biblical perspective, wanting to mirror what God had done to set, God had given and chosen as names for several um, biblical figures. And so, you know, I think that at the end of the day, asking from like a clinical and psychological standpoint, I think as long as um, parents are pouring in and and making sure that um, children and teenagers um, understand pieces of their first culture and understand their ethnicity, that a name change can be appropriate, particularly when families are coming from a faith-based perspective. But just like almost anything with children in general, but definitely children um, from international adoption of making sure to intentionally discuss these mm-hmm. topics and not just sweeping them under the rug, not just changing a name. And um from like a shame-based perspective. And that is the opposite of what Vanita was speaking into. But sometimes families do things early on in an adoption process and they don't talk about it anymore. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It does. And I totally see the both sides of it. And, and I think that that goes really to the, what you said, um, that it really is important to communicate it, right. To be intentional about whichever you do to be very intentional about it. And I think that that's something that really stuck out to me there with them was the intentionality of it. It wasn't just, oh, we're going to change the name. It was, we're going to change the name and have it mean something. And we're going to share it with them and we're going to tell them why. And I think that that was something that really stuck out to me. And one of the other things that, you know, Ruth especially is very intentional about is really working with the plight of women and girls in India and, and really sharing with us about this movie, Petals in the Dust, and what we can do about it. And that's something, another issue that we can't brush under the rug, right? It's not just in India. It's obviously happening in other parts of the world, but in India and places like India in particular where women under the worldview are lesser, Right. And, and Mm -hmm. that's how they're seen. And that actually goes to what we're going to be talking about a little bit later too. But, and like we talked about last week, really with worldview, um, how it's so critical and what, what, what really, you know, what'd you think about that conversation? Yeah, I think she did a great job of really providing a lot of great education, which is kind of what she was saying of, hey, like my point right now is to become um, an educator. We can't advocate for what we don't know about. And she did a great job with that. I also think she did a really, really nice job of explaining what her story looked like coming into this family and then seeing her older brother have a difficult, a very hard transition based on his story and his trauma. But she did a nice job of explaining what lies and deceit meant in her world and how she used that as a way to try and control her environment, not because she was bad, not because she was manipulative, not because she was some type of terror, but really coming from a place where, um, she was anxious and she was in uh, clinically speaking, like hypervigilant, always wondering what's going to happen next. And in that we see often, um, kids and teenagers, they do try and control their environments to, to have more comfort and more control over when something bad might happen. And she did a really nice job of um, talking about that. And I hope that any adoptive or foster parents who are listening to this really hear that and hear from an older adoptee's perspective of what, what does this anxiety look like? And what do these fantasies look like when um, children are growing up in our homes? And it's very normal, very normal for them to think, well, my first family would never do this, or my birth mom would never make me sweep the floor. or My birth mom would never make me wash the car. Or my birth mom 
mom would never speak to me in those ways. And knowing that, um, from an adoptive parent perspective or a foster parent that we have to be so secure in our role as mom or dad that we know that our kids can say any of those things. Um, and knowing that that's coming from a place of deep pain and deep loss and not taking that personally, like, Oh no, my kid doesn't like me or, Oh no, yada, yada, yada. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, before we move on to the next segment, I just want to give you one more chance to any last words about this, uh, this interview. If you don't have any, then yeah, that's fine. Two oh, things. I've two got two things. things. All right. Yep. That's sorry. Okay. No, don't be sorry. So, um, I think that one of the things that, um, Sandeep and Vanita both talked about was a virtual education. And I want to give another plug to that. That is an excellent resource that sometimes families are not aware of. I work with so, so many families who have utilized these types of resources, whether it's for a year or a couple of years or for that child's entire education. And so virtual education is an incredible resource. I would strongly recommend it if traditional types of education are not working for your child who's joined your family through foster care or adoption. And then the last thing that I want to comment on, um, and it's in the theme with what we've already talked through with that intentional parenting and that investment parenting, Vanita talked about when things were really, really difficult and um, they were kind of in crisis. I don't know if she used those words exactly, but she talked about how her husband made a really difficult decision to change careers and change jobs. And in that he actually took, um, a job that was under his like education and training, meaning it was a lesser role for him. And I think that was a really great example of what does it look like to have sacrificial parenting? What does it look like to be intentional and strategic and have that long, long-term parenting perspective that my child's needs come first. And that is absolutely important for parenting in general, but very much, very, very important for children coming to our homes through foster care or adoption, particularly children at an older age. And so she did a nice job of giving a real world example of what is intentional investment parenting look like. So that was a lot of um, information, especially from a clinical perspective. So Phil, I know that you have um, some lessons to share with us. I think this is our fourth one. So um, let's hear from you about those uh, lessons you learned in 2017. Yeah. So like, like I said, these are, these are lessons that were really confirmed last year in, in different ways. Some, some more clear than others. Um, if you want to go check them all out on the blog, you can go do that at thinkorphan.com and just, uh, click on the blog link and you can see that post. And, and what I'm doing here is I'm just really kind of expanding on what we talked about, um, or what I was able to share in that, in that blog post. And so this number two, on the five lessons learned in 2017 is really that studying scripture and knowing it intimately is a primary concern to allow one to navigate the false gospels in our world today. And really there's so much noise in this world. There's so much, so many different people competing for our attention. So many people competing for our mind to really be able to impact it and to share what they think and share their opinions and share their thoughts. And there's really no filter on it anymore. It's, you can literally publish anything in two seconds on the internet. You just hit, click a button and it's up. And people become quote unquote experts just because they get an audience. And so, you know, and sometimes they actually are right on, spot on in, in every way. And other times they're close, but not quite. And other times they're way off. Um, but really there's only one way for us to know the difference. And that's to really have a, a, an absolute 
truth. And there's only one absolute truth. And, you know, and that's, that's scripture. And in, in, uh, second Timothy, Paul, uh, says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And he goes on to really say, why is that important? It's to, it's to be able to tell that, to be able to be able to separate the sheep from the wolves. It's, it's be able to see the truth, to know the truth, and also to be able to spot when it's not the truth. And, and there's, there's a great adage that, you know, the best way to be able to tell a counterfeit is to study the real thing. And that's what the people at the Mint do. They, they, they you know, print all the money for us. They don't study all the different counterfeits. They study the real deal. They study that dollar bill or that hundred or whatever it is so that they know when it's not. And that's what we needed to do to, as well. And I, I think it, it does apply really exactly to what we were talking about today where they were talking about so many different worldviews in India and other parts of the world that, you know, if we go into that without a firm understanding, a firm um, real uh, understanding of what scripture says, then we might be led astray in different ways by these things that sound good and are very attractive to us. And so, you know, I'm not going to get into any specific things today as far as what is heresy and what is not, you know, because I think that that's something that when we understand scripture and when we are able to really go through it with a real, um, you know, true, honest interpretation and, and understanding of what it means, it will be clear to us what is truth and what is not. So that's just really kind of what, what I, what I learned. I actually preached on it a few weeks ago at church and it's something that I just love sharing what I'm learning. And this is something that became so, so clear, especially last year with all the fighting and, and arguing and stuff online with, you know, people, you know, professing Christians all over the world who are, so all across the map. And I, I just think a lot of it is because of the, and that's the other thing is when I was studying for my, when I gave the sermon, the, the illiteracy, the biblical illiteracy of even professing Christians, because over 50% of Christians say they don't read the Bible. And that's something that's just amazing. Like you don't even know what you believe or you, you state you believe. So that's, that's something you really can't believe something that you don't know what it is. Right. So anyway, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm tracking with you. Um, so much related to that, even as I think from a clinical perspective of what we know about faith development and the way that our brain works. And uh, one of the most integral parts of faith development, we typically see it during late adolescence or early adulthood, but I guess it could happen a little bit later in life, depending on someone's trajectory, but of understanding that their belief in Christianity or whatever their worldview is, is they know so much about it. They understand it, that it is actually their belief and it's not a, simply a regurgitation of someone else in their life. Um, and that's super, super important. And, you know, if you think about even this interview, um, all three of our guests circled back to an understanding and a love and trust in Jesus Christ and an understanding and a trust in the Lord. And they all referenced it, even when Ruth gave that really great picture, the, the, the tree image. And I don't remember exactly the details. We don't have time to go into it, but ultimately the, the hope in mm -hmm. Jesus. Absolutely. You got to know, you got to know the facts and the truth about that. Yep. No, definitely. Well, that brings us to the next section. We have the next segment that we're due almost every episode, and that's our recommendations. Today we have uh, another kind of rare thing where both Karen and I are going to give recommendations, so we won't take too long giving them, but they are three great resources for you. So Karen, what you got? 
Okay. This week, um, I have a great book. It's actually a children's book. It's a great recommendation for parents, for teachers. It's called Star of the Week, and it's a really short children's book, but it's a great book to help um, when we have children in our families who come from different stories. It talks about a little girl who is the star of the week in her, I don't know, kindergarten or first grade class. And it really points out and creates a space to have talking points with children who've grown through, especially international adoption, when maybe a child doesn't know the first pieces of her story or doesn't have pictures of birth mom or birth family. And so it's just a great book. Um, It's a great resource for families and teachers. I strongly, strongly recommend it. Phil, what about you? I think you have two to share with us. Before I go to those, I just want to remind people that Tara Vanderwood back in uh, season two also talked about that very thing too, is Mm -hmm. the importance of, of understanding that difficulty of really sharing your story. And if there's family tree projects or things like that to really, oh, be it happens to, all the time, you know, have an alternative that isn't something you do in front of the class either. That is just something that the child will be able to, to share it, but not feel, you know, like the outcast. And that was something that Tara did very well in that interview. And, and she also has other resources. So definitely go back and check that out. If that's something that, that is, um, you know, you're, you're thinking really applies to you. The other two uh, recommendations we have really go along the, the idea of pouring into children because you never know what amazing gifts and talents they might have that might not be the norm, you know? And the, the first one is The Queen of Cotway, and that's a fantastic movie. It's a Disney movie, um, but it, it's, it's, it's based in uh, Uganda, and it's, it was, I believe it was filmed on location um, there as well. I could be wrong on that, but I know that it's, it's a great ministry. It's a sports ministry that's working over there, and this little, little girl um, has a gift of chess. I mean, who knew? Like, who would know? Who would think, right? Like, anywhere. Um, that somebody's going to have a, an amazing just love for chess. Um, not something I think about right off. Maybe some families out there do, but it wouldn't come to me. And this story is just how one man was able to nurture this girl and so many others, too, in this amazing, um, uh, you know, game of chess that they were able to, to flourish in that. So check it out. I'm not going to you know, ruin it or spoil it, but it's really a great picture of how when you pour into a kid, you never know what gifts and talents will come out and how you can nurture them to really bring them to their flourishing. And the other one is uh, one of the most famous names the world has ever known, and that's Pele, um, one of the best soccer players ever. And this is a movie about how he got his beginnings. It's called Pele, The Birth Birth of a Legend. And it just shows also how many things had to happen for him to become Pele the name that we know. And it wasn't just one, you know, it wasn't him just being a great soccer player and then the rest was history. No, there were so many things that had to happen, people that had to believe in him, people that had to push him, and also just situations that had to happen for him to be able to be put into the positions to be the best. And so those are things that I think, you know, were great, great movies, great pictures of that for us. So with all that, um, I just, I just pray as I always do. And I, I just encourage you and implore you to, to use what you're learning on this show. Use what you're learning in other areas of your life and take it all in and really engage and use it to know how you can love orphaned and at-risk children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.